Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. The last uh, several weeks we have been reminded again and again and again why it is so crucial that we understand what Paul says when he says in verse 18, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. In other words, when he says Jew and Greek, all men, all men. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is so crucial that there is a righteousness that comes from God and can be a gift to us. Because we all, Jews and Gentiles, the whole world, the whole world, bar none of men, is without excuse. We looked at first the Gentile and what God thinks of the Gentile and why they're without excuse. We turn to the Jew and why the Jew as well, the pious, righteous Jew off in the corner who's thanking God that he's not like the Gentiles because he hasn't totally forgotten God is also without excuse. All men are without excuse. And the only answer is to repent and run to the righteousness that Christ provides. That's the only remedy. And I think you probably feel it. I certainly feel it. These have been heavy weeks. Heavy weeks. I, I literally have had a couple of the hardest weeks uh, probably of my ministry following Sunday mornings, just just going home on Sunday afternoon and Mondays. I, I normally take Mondays off anyway because of the energy that I expend. I'm a natural introvert, and so I have to be an extrovert, and so I got to get that back someplace. So I take Mondays. I don't do much on Mondays. But it's been especially heavy. Partly I think about who's here and who's been here in those days, and sometimes people who maybe for the first time don't realize that that's not the place we always go when we talk about sin as heavily as we've been talking about it. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and, uh, and our only hope being repentance. And so my heart, heart has been troubled. Um, and one of the things that we have looked at in all of that is what 
true repentance looks like because the Bible that we've just read, the scripture, this is the third time we've been in the text, it says, Oh, do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So, so all that Paul is writing in these chapter 2 and all through about half of chapter 3 is to lead all men to repentance, lead all men to understand they're without excuse and they are naked before God. And as it says in chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. There's a, there's a, that picture is heavy. And uh, so we spent some time talking about what true godly repentance looks like. Last week we began that. I want to stay there a bit this morning um, and, and then tell you why I decided to stay there as we come to the table this morning. Let me, let me remind you what I said last week about what true godly repentance looks like. Because if it's all to bring us to repentance, we need to make sure we understand what repentance is. And we talked about the aspects of repentance and what it means to be brought to repentance. It's to think again. We talked about that. You, you rethink things. Um, that's part of repentance. And you, you rethink it to have a change of mind begins to happen in you when you come to true godly repentance. And then ultimately it leads to a different life. I mean, it changes the way we live out that life. But repentance does not begin with living out a different life. In fact, you can live out a different life without the first two things happening just for the sake of what people think. So it, it doesn't begin there. It's all three of those things, but it is all three of those things. And it begins by thinking again and a change of mind that happens. And so we spent some time talking about what that change of mind is. When true godly repentance begins to settle in upon us, what that change of mind is. And it's, it's really multifaceted, but one of the things that that change of mind is is we begin to think differently about who God is. We begin to see him differently. We begin to see God as God and as a holy God. That's one of the things that happens. One of the things that sometimes people ask me is, is and we don't do it so much anymore since we have a, a vision statement and a purpose statement, but before we actually had that in words on the wall and and hopefully incorporate into our lives fully. One of the ways I used to answer that question was two ways when they talked about what, what's our purpose and what, what, what is the center of your ministry. Two things I would say, two prayers. I would say it's two prayers that we pray. First prayer is that um, as children set in our services, and we purposely have the children here for part of our time in worship, but when they're here, that, that even the youngest among us that will be sitting in that pew may not understand everything that happens and all the words that are said and all the songs that are sung. But one of the things they do sense that when they gather in the gathering of the church, whether it be in this setting or some other setting, when they gather there, particularly in corporate worship, they just sense um, something different than any other gathering they're in. It, it's different. They gather with their parents in other gatherings, but this gathering is different than any other gathering. A sense of God in the midst of us, a sense that we're coming into his presence, a, a, a sense of, of the majesty 
and holiness of God, all of that. They, they don't put it in those words, but there's just a sense that this is different than any other gathering. A sense of transcendence is the way I would say it. A sense of transcendence about the gathering. That's one of the prayers that I pray for the sake of next generations. But the second prayer is that, that God might just awaken people in our surrounding communities. And we have lots of those, and they get spread out. But that God would just awaken people in the night that we would hear stories of God awakening people in the night. Not, not, maybe not exactly this way, but they would wake up just troubled. Maybe it's not at the night. Maybe it's during the day. But all of a sudden they begin to be troubled about their sin. Begin troubled about, about wrongdoing and lawlessness. Those kinds of things we just read about. They begin to be troubled by it and, and begin to think, I've got to, I've got to find a way to know it's not going to be held against me. A troubling, a troubling of their soul. And, and part of that, I think, happens. As, and, and what repentance is, is that a troubling is we begin to see a picture of God, the holiness of God. We begin to see God in ways we haven't seen him before. And as we begin to see the holiness of God and what he really thinks about sin and, and what a cosmic treasonous event our sin is to him, when we begin to see all that, then we begin to see ourselves differently. So true godly repentance has, has to do with seeing God and more of his fullness. It, it then begins to shine a light on us. It begins to show who we are, and we begin to understand our sin. We begin to be troubled by our sin. Uh, one man said, vile and full of sin I am. I am all unrighteousness in me, that is, my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Those kinds of things begin to swirl in us. We go from things like, that's not fair, when we think of God. That's not fair. Why are you doing this? To an attitude of, why does God put up with me at all? It's not only fair that he wouldn't. It's just that he wouldn't because I know my sin. I know what I have done before a holy God. That those kinds of things begin to come upon us, I think, in true godly repentance. And then, and then as the gospel, the remedy is presented, we flee to Christ. We flee to his righteousness, the righteousness that he provided, the righteousness that Paul is talking about. We flee to it as our covering. That's, that, I think, is, is a picture of, of true godly repentance. There may be different nuances in it, but basically that's the framework that it begins to happen. If somebody really, really flees to Christ, at first they see who God is, they see who they are, and they realize how desperately they need him. So they cling to him. They run to him. Um, they, they find their righteousness in him and not in themselves. Now, the alternative to that, this, is, this takes me back to last week. This takes me back to Sunday afternoons and, and Mondays. Um, the alternative, because I spent a considerable time last week, if you remember at the end of the service, talking about the alternative to that. And the alternative to that of true godly repentance coming there is this. Listen to it again um, in verse 5 of the text. It says, but because of your heart... An impenitent heart, 
Because of, you have not come to true godly repentance. Because of your hard and impenitent heart. This is what it says. This is the picture we should get in our mind, which is, is a horrible picture. But it says you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will, will be revealed. And the picture of that that I painted last week, which I think is a biblical picture, is that we, we don't come to repentance. We don't flee to Christ. We don't acknowledge our sin and our need. And we deny that we're without excuse. And we continue to sin cavalierly. Think, no big deal, nothing happened today and I did it, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it the next day. I'll keep on doing it. And literally what the picture I think of this text is, you're just, you're just putting more behind the dam. You're just stockpiling more behind the dam. It does matter. It does matter. It is adding to what one day is going to break in God's righteous judgment. That's, that's not a pretty picture. And that's the thing that troubled me Last week again, as I thought, of people who might be here think that's a steady diet of that. Now, I tried to contrast it, and I think there is a contrast, and I, again, would take you to the contrast this morning of that. I want to go back there for just a moment to Psalm 31. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, let me, let me read it. This is, this is the contrast. One is that contrast, the impenitent, the one who does not come to repentance, the one who does not realize he's without excuse, the one who who continues without God the repentance. And, and this is the contrast of one who does now. This is, this is the picture of the penitent and what awaits the penitent, one who truly begins to run and flee to Christ. Verse 19, it's an Old Testament picture, but it, it, it's a biblical picture. It says this, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, speaking of God, which is stored up. Again, stored up. Same idea. The wrath is being stored up. But this is being stored up as well. Stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. How abundant is your goodness being stored up. God is storing it up. You see the two pictures? One, the impenitent. The other is the one who's come to true godly repentance. And, and what difference is behind that wall for both? That's a heavy subject. And I went away last week thinking, did I stay on Psalms 31 long enough? Did I describe it in, in great enough detail? And then... I remembered as I was wrestling with that again last week. We get to come to the table today. We get to come to the table today. There is no greater and grander picture of that goodness and what is stored up for those who have come to know their sin and run to the remedy than what this table represents to us. Not because there's something magical in these elements. Not because of that but because of what it represents to us. Jesus said, whenever you eat or drink, remember, remember. What do you remember? 
you remember this. You remember Psalm 31. Remember what is awaiting those who have taken refuge in Christ. It's why we're to do it on a regular basis. Different traditions disagree how often and, and in different ways, but the truth is we do it to remember. To remember. And I, I can't express to you as I was thinking about all of that early last week as I was going to prepare to move on in the text. And I thought, I'm not moving on. I'm not going any farther than where I was last week because I want to say it more profoundly. I want to say it again. This, this is what awaits those who allow the fact that they are without excuse and need of a Savior to run to that Savior. It is a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's, it's why now, as you go back to Romans chapter 4, that text that I read in our prayer time, it's why that text, as I, as again, early in the week, as we were preparing for that memorial service for Selmer, and that text just leapt off of his Bible to me. We're going to get there, folks. We're not going to be in chapter 2 and halfway through chapter 3 forever. We're going to be there longer. We're going to still have to continue to walk through that. But I tell you, at the end of it, at the end of it, these are the kinds of things that you start to read. Paul has to make sure, though, he has to make sure that they understand they're without excuse, that everyone is without excuse, not just the Gentile, but the Jew as well. All men are without excuse. He's going to continue to hammer it with the hope that they will come to true godly repentance and know the reality of chapter 4 where it says, Blessed, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not, will not hear it, will not count his sin against him. The one who it is not true that there is a dam holding back wrath because all of that, all of that was poured out on Christ. All of it for those who have run to him and the provision that he has made. It will not come. It will not come to those who've come to true godly repentance because they're safe because of what Christ has done. Now, let me, let me make a little application here and then we're going to actually come to the table. Um, last week, if you remember at the end, I shared some bullet points kind of applications. One of the things that I said is that, that, that godly repentance is a lifelong journey. And I believe that. I believe that true godly repentance starts in a moment and we're brought to life in Christ, but it, it doesn't stop and end. It, it continues on. In fact, I think one who comes to true godly repentance, in many ways, the life of the Christian is a life of repentance, of perpetual repentance, of, of, of owning up to the fact that we haven't arrived yet and owning up that there's still sin that resides in us and, and we don't live every day for the glory of God as we ought. We do better than we had done, but we have not fully arrived. And so, so we continually see more 
of, of the way in which sin plagues us, even as a Christian. But we repent of it. We acknowledge it. And we're free to acknowledge of it because it will no longer, it will no longer be held against us. That's the key. And last week, what happened? I don't know what happened, but I, I mixed up a page in my notes and so I didn't get to this point. It's part of what troubled me as I left. I didn't say enough. And this is what I would have said to you. This is, this is crucial for you to hear. Young person, I, I felt especially for some of you who are of younger age that you need to hear this. But all of us need to hear it. And that's this, that the only sin, the only sin that can be successfully defeated in our life is a canceled sin. In other words, you don't, you don't seek to defeat your sin so that it can be canceled. That's not the way the gospel works. The gospel works is God cancels the penalty of that sin. His lawless deeds will not be held against him. And that way, because you know that it's a canceled sin, you then can fight to defeat that sin in your life out of the freedom of knowing that, that it is not storing up more wrath for you. You can admit it. You can acknowledge it freely. The wrath that is removed, this, this is a key part of this that's important for you to understand. The wrath that is removed is, is the wrath for your sin. And hear this, young people, past, present, and future. It isn't as though God removes the wrath up to date and then if you start sinning after that, he just kind of adds it back in. When it talks about the wrath being removed, it is, it is for all of your sin. The, the wrath that Jesus endured, the wrath that he felt from the Father. The, the scriptures say in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father. It was the will of the Father to crush the Son. When he crushed the Son for the sins of those he was saving, it was sin, past, present, and future. All of their sin fell on him. All of my sin fell on him. That's my hope. All of it. All of that that was walled up there or would be walled up even more in the future fell on Christ. And so now, the only thing being walled up is God's goodness toward me. That's why it's important to understand that the only sin that can be successfully defeated in your life is a canceled sin. And when you trust Christ, they're canceled. They will not be held against you. And so you can look into your life and acknowledge, acknowledge sin, and it won't, it won't get you in trouble in the sense of coming at you. But God will use the fact that you know it's canceled to help you fight it. It's what Charles Wesley said. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. We're set free to really battle sin in our lives, to really let him conform us to the image of his son. And so this morning... I pray and I hope that you 
know what it is to be safe in Christ. To know that the promise of Psalm 31 is yours. That he's storing up now his goodness for his children. And no longer is his wrath there because it all fell on Christ. Now, we're going to come to the table this morning. And I want to close going back to an illustration that I shared last week that I think, again, is pertinent to all of this. I told you that um, in my ministry, at times, I will have people come to me, maybe more so when I was working directly with youth and ministry in, in those arenas than I do now. But I remember people coming to me and and after they'd heard the testimony of somebody who had been marvelously brought out of some difficult things in their life, um, have what, what you might call a sensational testimony of a dramatic change in their life. They, and, and it's visible. It's easily seen. People could know it. I remember people coming to me at times saying, I wish I had a testimony like that. I mean, I've grown up in the church all of my life. And, and I don't have some dramatic testimony like that to share. I wish I had that. And what I read between the lines is what they were saying. Not, not everyone that says that, but I think I might not be too far off. What, what we're really saying when we say that is, I wish I had something for God really to forgive. I mean, really to forgive. So that I would know forgiveness. That makes sense? Maybe you've said that. Wish I had something really for God to forgive. And what Romans tells us, the reason Paul takes a chapter and a half to talk about sin is to say to you, you do. You do have something for him really to forgive. And until you recognize that, until you come to that point, you're not going to really appreciate the remedy. And in fact, it may be that you're not really going to come to true godly repentance because true godly repentance is you see his holiness. You see the standard. And you see yourself. You see yourself as that lawless one, as that one who has offended that God who's fallen short. And you realize what it is to commit cosmic treason and sin against that God. And you have. All of us have. The Romans says we are all without excuse. We all, we all are in one of two places. Either there is a dam holding back the wrath of God that will one day fall on us if we remain unrepentant, or we have repented of that and run to the remedy. And now there is a dam of goodness that God bestows upon us. That's the only two choices. It's the only two places we can reside. And this table beckons to us, beckons to us the remedy, Christ. Christ. Christ not just for the one with the sensational testimony, but Christ for all. Because all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And all 
desperately need what it represents to us. I pray this morning whether you come to this table today knowing all that I've talked about and have known it for a long time and you come remembering and running and finding refuge in Christ and you've done it often or whether maybe for the first time this morning this is making sense to you and you say in your coming I run to Christ I realize my sin I realize I'm without excuse I realize how desperately I need it not long ago somebody sent me a letter about doing that for the first time whether it's the first time or many times I beckon you to come let's pray Father we are grateful for what this table represents I'm grateful Father that after sharing heavy heavy things we can say look to Christ look to the remedy rest in the remedy know that your lawless deeds can be forgiven and don't have to be held against you because of the work of Christ oh God how desperately we all need it I pray as we come this morning we will rejoice in it in Jesus name amen like for those that are going to help us this morning to distribute the elements to come the elders and the worship team is going to help us to worship even as we come if you're visiting with us this morning or new among us um, we have open communion at Richland you are welcome to partake of this uh, time with us and eat with us at this table if you can live under the invitation we only ask that you would review the invitation that we have in the bulletin and if you feel that you are in that arena of invitation, we would welcome you to come and eat and rejoice in all that Christ has done for us today. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke the bread and he told them to take and eat in remembrance of me. the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for you. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the King.
body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal, the death that brings us life, paid the price to make us one. So we share in this bread of life, and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of love around the table of the Take and eat and rejoice that your lawless deeds will not be held against you. together that night he took the cup and he said this is the new covenant in my blood drink in remembrance of me That cleanses every stain of sin shed for you. Drink and remember, he drained us cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. So we in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of grace around the table of the King.
And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond And to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth as we share in his sufferings we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of Around the table of the King There is an irony in the gospel. There's an irony in true godly repentance. Because what we find happening in true godly repentance is we begin to get a sense of the holiness of God, the justice of God, the truth of God, that God is a God of truth. God is a God of justice. And it, it leaves us without excuse. Not just the godless Gentiles that we talked about, but the Jews the pious Jews who, though maybe had not gone to the extremes that all the Gentiles had gone to, by totally rejecting God and for not having any retention of knowledge of God, but yet they knew they were guilty. They knew they, they were not measuring up to the holiness of God. And so Paul was hammering so that they would know their undoneness, that they would know they're without excuse. And it was the very holiness of God that is held up, that God is a God of truth. And yet, the thing that undoes us as we come to the table now is what gives us our deepest assurance, gives me my deepest assurance. Because Christ bore the wrath of all who look to Christ. God is a God of justice. He's a holy God. And if Christ bore that, if Christ experienced what was being piled up for all who run to Christ, it would be unjust of God to then expend it to another. And so you see the irony, do you? That the one thing that undid us and it was a gracious thing that it undid you, if it did, now becomes your greatest confidence that God is a just God. And if Christ is our sin bearer, we will not, we will not have our sins held against us. Drink and rejoice. Let's stand together.
Father, we're grateful for your mercy. We're grateful that you have opened our eyes to see who you are and who we are. And all of it has caused us to run to Christ. That's our only hope. That's our only confidence that he finished the work. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in God's peace.